This summer, my family and I had the privilege of visiting New York City, and a highlight for me was visiting Ellis Island, the primary immigration center in the United States from 1892 to 1954. 12 million immigrants were inspected and processed in those years, including my own relatives from Poland and Ukraine. Walking through the National Museum of Immigration there on the grounds, one wonders what motivates a person to leave their possessions, their homeland, their livelihood, all that is familiar, to voyage to a new land where the food, the language, the culture, the people are totally foreign. Many of those people gave up nearly all they had for the hope and promise of a better life. In my case, my dad tells stories of how his relatives fleeing from a war in Russia and religious persecution worked their tails off, saved up, and then once they had enough money would purchase a steamship ticket for the next family member to join them. They believed the life they would gain in America was worth sacrificing everything for. Now, that's an extreme example of someone giving up all they have to gain something better. We could think of more minor ways, uh, far more minor, <laughs> of sacrificing for something we deem worth it. Exactly 10 years ago, we were new to Minnesota, and money was extremely tight, but I had heard about the Minnesota State Fair, and I wanted our family to experience that. So I gathered some old clothes and toys no longer in use, consigned them, and using every other trick in the book to find an affordable way to get there, found a way for us to get there, and we had a great time. Martha's Cookies, yes. How many have been already this year? Anybody? You want to admit it? Oh, nice. Be bold. Uh, or we could think of movies where talented musician says no to impressive job offers because he's got to go see about a girl across the country. Many of you have depleted savings accounts to use for down payments on homes because some things are just worth it. And today's story says just that. In fact, it would say only one thing is worth it, worth sacrificing everything for. We're in our final week of a mini-series on the kingdom parables called On Earth As It Is in Heaven, where we're looking at four stories Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13 that help us understand what God's kingdom is like. The first two parables describe the reality of God's kingdom, and the last two describe our response to this kingdom. The reality as of God's kingdom, as depicted by a mustard seed and leaven, is that while it may be hidden or unnoticeable, it doesn't appear as explicit as we would like, its presence, it is present and powerful nonetheless. And this is true despite the fact that evil, or weeds, remain mixed up with the wheat of God's kingdom. Last week, we learned from the parable of the four soils that our first response to this kingdom is to listen to God by responding to his word. And today we conclude this series with two little parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl, which both describe the radical obedience this kingdom demands and the joy it elicits. Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. Let's first look at these parables in their context, and then we'll look at what they mean for us today. I hope it's no surprise as we come to this final week in our mini-series of Kingdom Parables that once again Jesus is using very familiar images and storylines as he teaches. He gets an A-plus on accessibility to his largely Jewish audience here. We've seen this the whole way through Matthew 13, from soil and fields to mustard seeds and wheats and its dubious look-alike tares, all are part of the landscape of an agrarian culture. He does it here too with treasure buried in a field and a merchant buying pearls. Let's start with the buried treasure. Buried treasure has always captured the imagination. Think Indiana Jones or national treasure. In part because burying money or other valuables in the ground has been a practice in nearly all cultures, particularly in ones existing before modern banking systems. In the first century, historian Jew Josephus records how Jewish people often buried their wealth underground in the hopes that those pesky Romans wouldn't find it. That's why when Jesus teaches the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he describes the conservative man as burying his treasure in the ground for safekeeping. There was a rabbinic saying that said the only one safe repository for money was the earth. <laughs> This was all the more the case in the land of Palestine, which was highly contested. If your enemy was invading, why be weighted down with all that gold and jewels only to have it taken from you if you were captured? And indeed, historians like Josephus describe people bearing their treasures as they fled attack, hoping that they could one day return and find them after the attacker had left. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field is a very familiar storyline. As is the merchant looking for fine pearls. Pearls were regarded as some of the most valuable objects in existence at the time. Divers would search for them off the coast of the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. And some of those pearls, imported by the rich, would be worth millions of dollars. Likely, the wealthy merchant in this parable is a wholesale dealer whose work involves finding precious gems and selling them. But beyond that setting, these stories give us a slightly different take on the same point. Let me explain. In the case of the hidden or buried treasure, this image is probably one of a Jewish peasant working in the fields of a wealthy landowner. As he's going about his work, he accidentally, fortuitously, comes across this buried treasure in a field. And when he does, he rehides it, ensuring no one else can take it, then sells all he has to purchase that field. Conversely, in the case of the merchant, he's a wealthy businessman. His find isn't accidental. He's intentionally seeking it out. It's not the main point of the parable, but it's certainly a sub-point. The good news of this kingdom is for poor peasants 
as well as rich businessmen. And it doesn't matter whether one stumbles upon it accidentally or whether one is intentionally seeking it out. It's a find, jackpot, gold mine. Now, is it just me or is anybody else slightly bothered by the fact that the guy has hidden this treasure and then does not disclose that to the landowner before purchasing it? Yes? Thank you. Thank you. Isn't this unethical? Shouldn't he have disclosed to the owner of the field that there was a treasure hidden there before he purchased it himself? A similar incident is recorded when 30 years ago in Israel, a man was hired to tear down the walls of a home. And as he's doing so, he comes across a jar filled with 20 pounds of silver from the 11th century, and he claims it for himself. So this is worth a lot of money. The owner of the house filed a complaint of robbery. Whose treasure was it really? The poor peasant or the contractor who stumbles across it or the wealthy owner of the property? Let me reassure you by first saying that many scholars believe this was legal and moral behavior because of the rabbinic regulations at the time of finding and lifting uh, being permitted, meaning if the owner hadn't yet lifted or taken possession of the treasure, it didn't belong to him. So the peasant is within his bounds to do this. Um, it may sound sketchy to our 21st century ears of truth in lending in Minneapolis, but it's very likely that the way the finder handles this would not have caused difficulty for Jesus' listeners in the first century. Furthermore, and perhaps more reassuring to those of us who still wish he had disclosed it, this find, some scholars say that if this man had simply taken the treasure, then a complaint could have been lodged. But instead, because he purchases the land, he establishes a legitimate claim to the treasure buried within it. Either way, regardless, we are not to get too distracted by this point. Jesus says nothing about the unethical behavior of this guy. This wasn't a distraction for his first century listeners, so it shouldn't be for us. Either way, the point of the parables together is clear. If the mustard seed and leaven teach us about the power of God's kingdom, small agent, large result, then the treasure and the pearl teach us about the value of God's kingdom. And Jesus' analogy about the kingdom's value is not merely in equating it to treasure or pearl, although that's obvious. He's drawing an analogy to the process described in those two stories, the storyline as it unfolds. And while those stories have slight discrepancies, as I've mentioned, the common theme between them is that in both cases, the people in the story found something so worthwhile, they took the necessary measures to acquire or obtain it. They found something so precious, it was worth sacrificing everything for. I want us to look now at the point of the parables for those first century listeners and for us. And I'm summarizing it with three succinct, hopefully memorable uh, phrases. Worth it, all in, and with joy. So let's look at each of these in turn. Worth it. This parable teaches the reality of God's kingdom that it's a treasure. It's a precious gem worth millions. It's a find. The biography of John or the gospel of John uses various images to try and elicit this sense in us that all that we long for is found in Jesus. 
He uses images like the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, the life, the bread of life, the living water. I love those last two especially. Talk about visceral. When you're hungry, he's bread that satisfies. When you're parched, living water is what you need. Another way Jesus describes this worth it mentality is in John 10, verse, uh, verse 10. I have come that people may have life and have it to the full. Life now and life after we die. Friends, there is more to life than making money, giving your kids a good education, launching independent adults into the world to do good and having fun along the way. There is meaning and purpose, and hope, and life more fulfilling than anything this world could offer. Most of you here today know this. You've reached a point in your life where you saw that to be the case. You knew a good deal when you saw it, and you went after it. I found this treasure about 40 years ago, but I'll be honest, sometimes I take it for granted. Sometimes I forget its value. Like my wedding ring, wow, Uh, too much princess bride, I think, is what that is. Okay, like my wedding ring, the gem dulls from the day-to-day burdens of life. I get gunk in the prongs of this ring from housework, whatever else is going on, and I need to clean it up and have it polished so it can shimmer again. If that's you, might I suggest you pay more attention to the competing gems around you. See if they hold up to the one precious gem. Spend time with people who haven't found this treasure. This can happen in a lot of places. It can happen when you're at a party or at a funeral or in a conversation with a neighbor or at a PTA meeting and you just sense unnecessary anxiety or unsettledness. It can happen in a dorm room or on a sports team where you see the emptiness of binge drinking and hookup culture. Let me be clear, the proper effect this comparison should elicit in us is not criticism, it's compassion. Conversely, in order to try and remember the value of this treasure, could choose to spend time with people who have found this treasure and see if their life holds up. One of the things I love about the church is we have the gift of benefiting from one another's stories. I love hearing how some of you have found this treasure years ago and how lo and behold, despite all the challenges in your life, you would still say, worth it. Yes, I'm in the later years of my life, and if I had to do it all over again, I would. Maybe you would benefit from talking to a Sylvia Pearson or a Warren and Barb Day or a Den and Nan Nordstrom. I'm sure they would be glad to share you their story of God's faithfulness. We can also remember the value of this treasure by immersing ourselves in the stories of Jesus. Whether you have been a Christian for a long time or whether you would not yet identify as a follower of Jesus, get to know Jesus on his own terms. Read any one of the four biographies about Jesus written by eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any one of the first four books in the New Testament. 
I'm pretty sure the stories will woo you. (laughs) Jesus is pretty irresistible. It would be our joy to give you one of these books written in an accessible version. Just ask me for a copy because Jesus is worth it. Now, this may seem too good to be true. Living water, unlimited, free of charge. Yes, but it demands a response. That's the second point of this story. All in. Did you notice both parables use the same language around the response of the finder? Verse 44 and verse 46, sold all, sold everything he had. Even if Jesus is using hyperbole here and not suggesting we all take vows of poverty, the principle remains. This treasure, this fine, this precious gem is so worth it. They gave up everything they had to obtain it. They sacrifice other wants for the sake of obtaining this. Jesus isn't saying we purchase salvation any more than he's saying we are all to take vows of poverty. His point is that receiving God's kingdom always requires a response. And that response is total obedience, radical, total surrender of our lives to him. You can't hedge your bets. It's an all-in kind of deal. This is how Jesus' first disciples responded to him. So says Peter in Matthew 19, 27, we've left everything to follow you. (laughs) I think he wanted points for that. Jesus' response in verse 29 was, everyone who's left father or mother or wife or children or fields will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Yeah, Peter, you've given up everything, worth it. And this is how Jesus' disciples are still to respond to him, all in. The finders in these parables sold all they had in order to secure the purchase of the treasure or pearl. The word all shouldn't be watered down. So says Jesus in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If this is truly worth it, then all in makes sense. Think about it like a financial investment. Generally speaking, the prescribed strategy is to diversify your investments so as to protect yourself from losing money in a bad investment, right? But what if you were able to determine in advance what stock was going to make a ton of money without ever going down? What if you knew what would be a no-lose investment? In that case, it's not wise to diversify and invest only some of your money in that stock. In that case, it's a wise move to invest all of your resources into that stock. Frankly, you'd be a fool not to. Similarly, because God's kingdom is worth it, we're wise to give ourselves fully to it. It's a good investment. It will pay dividends even if not in the way we initially want or expect. So let me ask us gently today, are we all in? Is there anything we're holding back from him? Is there any corner of our lives where we say, no, thank you. I got this. I don't need you. I can handle it. Maybe it's with our finances. We're holding on to We're holding on to them, and it limits what God might be able to do if we were instead generous. Maybe it's our time. 
We don't really want to spend the effort or energy it's going to take to serve in that way or befriend that person. Maybe it's in our overall strategy and goals for parenting or retirement, and we've been influenced more by American values than by God's values. Here's the thing. It's worth it. And it demands radical obedience, total responsiveness to God. But because it's worth it, this all-in is done with joy. Did you notice the language in verse 44 when the man finds the treasure? When a man found it, he hid it again. And then what? In his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, the story, the merchant doesn't, finding the pearl doesn't specifically say that he had joy uh, when he obtains it, but he sells everything immediately in order to do this. Who sells everything they have without some sort of adrenaline burst, right? This is what I find so distinctive about this parable. It's not just a message of how to surrender and sacrifice everything to Jesus because he's worth it. The way Jesus tells it, the people in these stories are giving a lot, everything, in fact. But the emphasis really isn't on the sacrifice because each of them receives something of greater value. For both the treasure finder and the pearl finder, their selling all they had wasn't perceived as a net loss or an onerous sacrifice they begrudgingly made. Dale Brenner in his commentary in this passage says, because of the surpassing value of the treasure in each case, selling was no sacrifice. It was smart business. It was a joy. Neither lost anything. In fact, they both made huge gains. So yes, God's kingdom has value. And yes, it's worth giving our lives to. But it's not a done begrudgingly, resentfully, like many martyrs we know. It's done with joy, with eagerness, where we focus not on the loss, but on the gain. Joy is a much better motivator than obligation. Yes, sometimes we hold steadfast to a commitment or relationship, including ours with God, regardless of our feelings, out of a commitment to be faithful. But if that's all our relationship with God is, why would anyone want to be a part of that? So Frederick Nietzsche's famous line, if Christians would seem to me to be more saved than they are, I might believe in their Savior. Ouch. In these stories, it's joy that causes the zeal of the selling. Joy is needed in order to make that decisive change. I'm taking the plunge. I'm all in. I think of couples in love and how that euphoria propels them toward making a lifelong covenant to one another in marriage. There's a great example of this in uh, Genesis 29.20. I think this is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. When the patriarch Jacob is eager to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, she's the cute one of the two sisters, but he has to work in Laban's field for seven years first. And the Bible has this great line. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only days to him because of his love for her. The labor was not burdensome because he was so focused on the prize. I am sure this is how Andy felt when he was sweating away in Illinois, painting houses the summer of 1998 just to earn money for an engagement ring for me, right? He's he's nodding. (laughs) Maybe this is a good reminder for some of us today. 
Has our response to God and this treasure gotten so familiar, this gem so faded, that we dutifully obey and follow but lack any joy? Even King David, revered leader of the nation of Israel, lost his joy at times. <laughs> Psalm 51:12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Nehemiah, great leader of the Jewish rebuilding campaign, told the people in Nehemiah 8:10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Maybe it's a good reminder for some of us today to allow the joy of first finding this treasure to fuel us in our faithfulness and obedience to God or to ask him to give it to us again afresh. There's no shame in that. In a few moments, we have the privilege of hearing, albeit briefly, the stories of three individuals from our community who've come to see Jesus' kingdom as worth it. And now they're all in. <laughs> They've made a decision to make Jesus their leader. And they do so joyfully, and we share in their joy. When Jesus told stories about people coming into relationship with him, he said, this calls for a celebration. <laughs> so we've got a bounce house and refreshments afterwards. <laughs> we want you to stay and celebrate with us. Friends, this is bounce house worthy. As these three choose to be all in for Jesus, the kingdom of God just became a bit more of reality on earth as it is in heaven. City Church, many of us have found this treasure, this pearl of great value. Yes, it's costly, but it's worth it. It's an investment. May we be so taken by it that we joyfully respond by giving our all, knowing it is indeed worth it. Can you imagine the difference it would make in our lives, in the lives of people we know and love, if we did? May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we bow before you. <laughs> we think of Peter. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We forget this. We get deluded by this in our everyday lives. It, it's dull to us at times. Would your Holy Spirit now, in your goodness, remind each one of us of this treasure we have, whether we stumbled upon it, or whether we were eagerly seeking and you let us find. Restore to us the joy of our salvation, we pray, that we might be used by you to see more of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name and always for his sake. Amen.